This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. It's through Point Click Care's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our Thought Provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Point Click Care. Frailty is not an inevitable part of aging. And once we realize that, then we can actually work towards making that that realization happen. So if I could make everybody realize that, I think we would win part of the battle. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I'm also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. As our population of seniors continues to grow over the coming years, we need to reimagine the way we support their living and care. In today's episode of Coming of Age, I'm joined by two experts in aging who are helping to drive transformation through their work in supporting the aging process. I'm joined by Dr. John Miscadiri, the CEO of the Canadian Frailty Network, a national network devoted to improving care for older Canadians living with frailty and supporting their families. John is also a professor of critical care medicine at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I'm also joined by Dr. Alex Mihalidis, the CEO of AgeWell, a national center of excellence and network that brings everyone together to develop technologies and services to support healthy aging. Alex is also Research Chair in Rehabilitation Technology at the University of Toronto and the University Health Network, Toronto, Canada. I am so delighted to have them join us to discuss the changes we all still need to make as a society to provide a better foundation of support for everyone during the aging process. So just to start off, I'd love to introduce you to our listeners by talking about what brought you into your careers. Throughout our, our podcast, we've learned that everyone has a, has a story about what has led them into this particular career path. And I'm wondering if you'd be able to share yours. Alex, would you like to start? Sure. No, absolutely. And thank you, Donna, for having me on. Um so I'm an engineer by training. I actually trained to go into aerospace <laughs> engineering. When I graduated many, many, many years ago, aerospace pretty much have, had left Canada. Uh, there, was, there were no jobs uh, available. And so I really had to look at doing a pivot in, in how I want to apply my engineering skills. And, you know, I knew the one thing that I wanted to do was to apply them to help people. And so at that point, I met uh, my soon-to-be supervisor at that point, Dr. Jeff Fernie, who ran the Center for Studies in Aging at Sunnybrook Hospital many years ago. Just talking with him about the work that he did around aging uh, and applying technology just really fascinated me. And so I decided to pursue that area for my master's. And 
But the key twist there is Jeff did technology for mobility and uh, nothing around cognitive, nothing around dementia or Alzheimer's, et cetera. And so um, the way I got into that area for my graduate work is I actually met a fellow engineer who was a caregiver to his wife who had uh, early onset Alzheimer's. And he was telling me about all the difficulties he had of taking care of her and during that conversation, he said, you know, it wouldn't be great if technology could do this for us. And that idea stuck with me. And I, and I went to Jeff and, you know, said, I want to try to develop a system that can provide prompts and reminders to, to older people with dementia. And he agreed. And I did that for my master's and doctoral work. And 25 years later, here I, I still am. It's so meaningful. It's amazing how those connections with mentors early on can can steer you in a different direction. So, John, over to you. You are the you're a professor of critical care medicine and the CEO of the Canadian Frailty Network. What what has your path been into the world of aging and frailty? So I trained as a physician and did postgraduate training in critical care medicine. And I was always interested in the outcomes of critical illness. The population of people who require critical care has been uh, gradually increasing. So when I first started in the early 90s, it was a very young population. But as the years have gone by, we're admitting 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds to critical care who may not have good outcomes. And, and I was always interested in improving outcomes from, from critical illness. That led to increasing interest in how, how can we do that? How can we make sure that um, late life care, end of life care has improved? And I got involved in, in this Networks of Centers of Excellence, which was initially focused on improving outcomes more in acute care from people with frailty who required critical illness. But as I got into it, it became very apparent that we needed to focus on improving outcomes from frailty in the community, and we embarked on a Canada-wide consultation. I traveled extensively across Canada and heard what the what the need was, and and so the focus of. Uh, of the Canadian Frailty Networks, it gradually expanded to all settings of care, particularly in the community. We've increasingly come to recognize that more of a preventive approach to healthy aging is going to be what makes the biggest difference, which leads to our collaboration now with AgeWell and going forward. I love the partnerships and, and how these uh, networks and centers of excellence really do bring people together. The last uh, two and a half years in the pandemic, unfortunately, really sh has shone a light on how we support our aging population or don't. We know in Ontario today, we have about 40,000 people waiting for long-term care. We know the population over 80 is going to double over the next 13 years. What we're also looking at, and John, as you sit in, in, in the hospital, we know right now that we're seeing significant pressures on our hospitals and anticipating recovery will take three to five years. Hospitals are feeling the great pressures with those who are lying in hospital beds and receiving hospital care while they're waiting for an admission into a long-term care home. We've lost capacity in the system, uh, though the government of Ontario has committed to building more long-term care spaces, uh, and we'll see some of those coming on stream, but certainly uh, won't see them coming on immediately. 
the two of you have worked together to um, really step back and, and write about and think about how we reimagine aging and how we provide uh, care to seniors. This really is a time of change. It's a moment of disruption, uh, but it's a great uh, moment of opportunity as well. Would love your thoughts on what we can be doing to meet the current demand. So where does technology, where do innovative approaches in community and healthcare, where do they fit today? But also what does the future look like? So uh, John, why don't we start with you and then and then Alex, uh, we'll move we'll move uh, to your response. Sure. So thank you. And and I think um, the COVID that also represents an opportunity to reimagine what, how we approach aging. And I think we need to reapproach aging instead of the reactive approach that we've had now to a much more proactive approach, which emphasizes preventive public health interventions to keep people healthy at home, but also over the over a period of time, increasing the amount of community support. And I think what by doing that, the reality is, is that given our aging population, we can never hope to build enough long-term care beds. We need to really embark on a public health preventative approach with social health care and technological innovations to actually improve the aging process at home to actually prevent people from requiring uh, long-term care. By doing that, also improve the aging process and improve the quality of life of people as they age, which are which are probably paramount. But then the benefit of that will be the reduction in long term care and the using acute care to to access long term care. I think is very very problematic. We need to stop that. We cannot have people living in hospitals as they currently do, waiting for for long term care. That is just not not an appropriate use of resources. And I think by having imaginative ways forward to better support people at home in their communities, um, we can actually prevent that. Yeah, I, I, I agree that the path through the hospital is just not sustainable. We really do have to find a better way. And Alex, where where can technology help us and how can it help us more quickly? I think as we think about that longer term, when we look at the tra- trajectory of our aging population, people over 80 doubling in the province at the same time as we factor in attrition of professionals, what can we be doing differently? And how do we think more about the immediate future as well as the longer term? Immediately right now, technology can be used to help fill many of the gaps that John has described and Donna that you've described as well with respect to providing care and support to, to our seniors and also to the caregivers as well. You know, there are technologies that are available right now, such as some smart home systems and wearable devices that can be used to help keep older people in their own homes along right now to provide Uh, care to them and support uh, to them. But uh, as I mentioned, also to the family caregivers, Uh, as you said, you know, we were seeing fewer number of people who are there to provide care to their loved ones uh, within their own homes. We're seeing caregivers who are living in different cities from their, uh, the people they're providing care to. And so these technologies can help support them in these different activities. And 
You know, the other thing also to remember is, you know, over the next five to 10 years, we're also going to see uh, a lot of new technologies coming out. Uh, the cost of technology is coming down, and that's from, again, these smart home systems and sensors to, to robotics. But we're also seeing a change in the demographic of the older adult population as well. And as the baby boomers obviously continue to age, um, they are a demographic that also has a, a higher level of comfort in using technology. And I would say a higher level of expectation of technology being used and being part of their daily lives, including their healthcare and their wellness. John, you spoke about Denmark and Alex, I know, I know you've been to Denmark as well. Are there specific things that you're seeing in Denmark? Is it more of a a societal structure, or are they using technologies in more innovative ways? Is it a, a more more of a, a cultural paradigm that we need to be thinking of? To your point, Alex, about who our aging population is, we're we're thinking about how we're going to accommodate the baby boomers. Uh, we've had discussions with our members, even in long-term care, where I think there's a recognition that the expectation of baby boomers and what their pathway in living in care will be is going to be very, very different. Perhaps, Alex, if, if you could start and, and, and talk uh, about what some of those other international models are, whether it's Denmark or, or, or other, other examples. I know I'm having these discussions with my colleagues on the Global Aging Network, but would love your insights in, uh, from, from your colleagues around the world. And then, John, I know you, you spoke specifically about Denmark, so we'll ask you to build on Alex's comments. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Donna. And in, in other parts of the world for many years, uh, I would say they've been far more entrepreneurial when it comes to this area of technology to support older adults or, or age tech, uh, as the industry is being referred to now. In the EU, for example, they have had much larger funding schemes than we have had here in Canada. They've been doing it for many more years. And the interesting thing there is their funding schemes when it came to age tech have very much been focused on commercialization, the development of startup companies, the establishment of test sites or, you know, living labs, so to speak, you know, in, in, uh, across Europe and other, in other places. And these are all things that Canada w was not doing and really what age well and, and, Frailty Network have really been trying to do together is to develop that entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak, here in Canada in this area. I think we're achieving that. You know, AgeWell in our past eight years, we've helped to launch 45 different startups in this area. But again, we still need to do a lot more. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, whenever I've gone to Europe or UK, there's always, you know, a set of housing that has been set aside by the city that are providing demonstration sites on how technology can support seniors. We don't have that here. To be honest, I've been fighting with the city of Toronto and the university and the hospitals here for years and years and years for us to get that. And, you know, AgeWell and, and, and CFN and other partners as we move forward, it's, it's a big aspect we're trying to look at is how do we develop these test sites or beachheads um, right across our country from coast to coast to coast. And it's such an important opportunity now, especially in Ontario, where we have 
commitments to build thousands of new long-term care spaces, but also look at different approaches to senior living and, and care. Uh, if not now, then when? Yeah, exactly. John, would love your thoughts on this. So you bring a, a different lens, um, but very complementary as you think about frailty and aging and, and what other jurisdictions are doing. So when we visited uh, Denmark, one of the major things that we were struck with was the level of engagement from the community and the local supports that seniors had. Once a senior reaches the age of 70 in Denmark, they will have a proactive visit to, to look at uh, their level of function, to identify if they have any needs. And then that way things can be targeted and, and those visits are done periodically to identify people that are starting to deteriorate, uh, deteriorate such that supports can be put into place earlier on in their process. Canada, we tend to have a much more reactive type of uh, policy where where people are only uh, given attention when they've truly deteriorated, where they're very very vulnerable at home. But I think if we if we took the similar approach and and, and uh, intervened much earlier in the process, we can maybe arrest that type of intervention. One of the other aspects for uh, the that we were struck by visiting some of their long-term care homes is how much they were integrated into their community. They were community spaces, and the residents were able to actually interact with the community. The community was able to uh, to come in, for example, utilize the restaurant in, in the or the uh, the dining facility in the long-term care home. That people would actually come in, have meals there. Where, where would we ever do that in, in Canada? So that level of support, that level of engagement of seniors that's based in the community, that's based in municipalities, um, is very important to actually making sure that, first of all, as somebody ages, they're much more integrated into the community, that we maintain social, social connectivity, which is really important. And, and also identify people that maybe are starting to deteriorate early such that we can intervene early to prevent them from getting into crisis mode. And that's when it prompts an admission to acute care or an urgent admission to long-term care. So I, I think those type of community and supporting that with technology or better ways to, to assess people, I think will be key to, to going forward. So we have the opportunity now to learn from some of these innovative models and reimagine uh, aging in, in Canada. If we hope to reimagine our systems and supports for seniors' living and care, innovation must be a top priority. As my guests highlighted, we can look to other countries that are already driving change through fresh ideas and an entrepreneurial spirit. Organizations like AgeWell and the Canadian Frailty Network are helping to usher in a new age of seniors' living and care supported by technology and it's encouraging to see tangible progress being made. In addition to technology, we need to place a greater emphasis on system integration, on community care, and on taking a proactive rather than reactive approach to supporting the aging process. We also need to challenge ageism, push back and change the perception of aging.
One thing we've we've spoken a lot about within our, our global aging network, including with uh, the leadership of the European Aging Network, is ageism. Would love if you could share your thoughts on what does ageism look like in Canada? And as we think about normalizing living and aging at home, so much of our planning now is to plan for long-term care as opposed to uh, plan for alternatives, notwithstanding. And we were speaking with some municipal governments a a couple of weeks ago where they said, well, no one wants to go into long-term care, so we're not going to build it. How do we normalize aging? Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Donna, and I'll come from it from a from a technology perspective because I actually think that we've we have not done much to reduce ageism in Canada and the age tech uh, area and e- even the word the word age tech, right? Um, you know, I've never understood this whole thing that you know you're 64 and you're you're not an older adult then you're 65 then you are an older adult and then all of a sudden, what you can use age tech when you're 65 and not 64, and so we're, we're really putting a, a label on these technologies that again are just saying, you know, these are only for older people. These are technologies only for people who, uh, you know, need support in their own homes, etc. And 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 to be honest, these are technologies that anyone can benefit from, right? You know, I have young kids at home and. You know, if I could use these technologies to make sure my kids are staying safe and sound, you know, when they get home from school or whatever else, then fantastic. So, you know, I really think from a technology perspective, we need to be looking more at these are over the life course, right? And But this is where the work that we're doing around things such as artificial intelligence is really important because it'd be fantastic if we can build a smart home that basically grows with you, right? And adapts as you as you age in your home and i'm not talking to, as an older adult i'm talking right throughout your entire life and the use of artificial intelligence and smart homes etc allows people to remain in their homes for 30 40 50 years because the home is changing and adapting and providing assistance with them no matter what point of their life they're in then you know that that's the ultimate kind of holy grail i think in what we're doing and um, hopefully we'll remove that whole notion of ageism and that it's only older adults that we're developing these technologies for. John, your thoughts? That is a truly great question. And and, I, and just to add to a bit to what Alex said, it, I'm always surprised too that, that as soon as you reach retirement age or 65 or whatever it is, then all of a sudden your utility to society is deemed to be diminished. And, and that's a huge opportunity because one of the things that we need to encompass is that our society grows older and and uh, we need to actually take advantage of the expertise the the experience uh, the the, the benefits of, of an older individuals that they could have to, to our society. And I think doing that and increasing those opportunities will help reduce ageism. So the volunteerism, helping people participate in their communities as community connectors, as maybe coaches, as uh, being able to, to help other people who are maybe not aging as well will be an increasingly important. And there are community models such as what's in Mendip in, in England that we can actually start to implement that we're going to be increasingly look at that actually leverages the, the, 
those opportunities and, and actually in, in both for the benefit of people that that are older, increases their community connectivity, but also for people that actually are going to be uh, utilizing those services. So we need to increasingly leverage those people that are aging well, that are still quite vibrant and utilize their services into different types of models going forward. The role of family caregivers is something that has really emerged over the last two years, uh, both from a a validation of the role and the importance of it. Uh, We've seen it certainly in long-term care. We're hearing more about that role within the hospital context. The Change Foundation did a lot of work and uh, Ontario uh, launched the Ontario Caregiver Organization. Um, Alex, you've spoken about the, the role of family caregivers. Are there some other examples where the family caregiver can be supported uh, with technology and uh, to John's point, supporting even volunteerism where a caregiver is not necessarily even a direct family member, could be somebody from the local community. And and I would say that walls have been taken down over the last three and a half years in the pandemic from a, an information and privacy perspective. So, so are there more opportunities? And could you speak maybe to some specific examples, Alex, that you're seeing around where technology, what are some of the specific technologies you're seeing now? From a technology perspective, actually what we've seen is the the primary customer of a lot of these technologies are the family caregivers themselves. They're the ones that are going and purchasing, as you said, the you know the, the Alexas or the um, Google Homes or whatever it may be, um, and setting them up in their parents' homes, et cetera, to have that connection. Uh, you know, so those are kind of the common ones off the shelf, but um you know, there, there's also systems out there that, you know, have various sensors in the home and cameras, as, as you mentioned before, that can send alerts to the family caregiver just on their smartphone and to know that, you know, their mom or dad has, you know, gone into the kitchen, they've opened the refrigerator, that they're using the, the washroom, et cetera. We're, we're seeing examples of family caregivers using these technologies um, that, provides this information to them in a way that now they're able to go back to work full-time, for example, Um, because again, they're receiving these alerts um, automatically and they're not having to be there physically to check in and make sure things are, are, are going okay with their, their parents or their other loved ones. We're also seeing the role of technology for caregivers with respect to their own mental health, for example. You know, technologies that are connecting family caregivers with other family caregivers across the country or around the world and and providing the opportunity for communities to be developed digitally, but still communities where caregivers can seek advice from each other or support from each other. And I think that's also a really important aspect, you know, especially coming out of the, the pandemic and even before that, you know, as we all know, you know, 70% of caregivers report mental health issues because of the care they're providing. And so anything that technology can do to help alleviate some of that mental health um, issues that we're seeing uh, is also a positive thing. And again, is an area where we're starting to focus more of our efforts as well uh, in AgeWell and with our, our various partners. Such important points around mental health and well-being. How do we 
embed literacy within caregivers, uh, within the school system, managers, supervisors, educators, where we all have some degree of literacy. One of the questions that came up in, in that regard is that the opportunity around aging and frailty as well to build out even in the curriculum of kids or elementary and secondary schools, a recognition of aging and, and community and supports as we go forward. So I really welcome your, your flagging that. Uh, John, you're a, a critical care physician. One of the, the things we've talked about and, and you've, you've spoken about is how do we avoid the, the pathway into a long-term care setting having to be through the critical care unit or the emergency department of a hospital? Are there tools that we can use to support people in their homes to avoid hospital admissions that, that might take them around it, along a different path? How do we think about that more structured continuum through community, even where they may need more intensive supports, but being able to get those in, in their home environment rather than hospital? So I, I think what it comes down to is... Um, is the proactive assessment of people before they're starting to deteriorate. People, a lot of times, by the time they get into a hospital, especially an older individual, they'll have started to deteriorate way before the crisis happens. And if you can actually intervene earlier, so having better ways to assess those people, having ways to assess, for example, for uh, for frailty, having ways to look at well, how much your movement using step counters or other types of automated frailty detectors may actually start to identify people early in their course. So before they, they present to the emergency department, and then once they present to the emergency department, a lot of times they're discharged home, having ways to actually monitor people once they're at home to keep them there to make sure that they are going, that they're improving, that are continuing on the right trajectory is really key. A lot of that hinges on having the supports in, in place. And uh, caregivers are incredibly important. But what we're actually also seeing is a lot of people that uh, because of uh, the, uh, the nuclear family or don't have a lot of families and, and all that. And so providing the supports to people that may not have caregivers is, is, crucially, is crucially important. And leveraging community resources is going to be critical for that. Reimagining family and uh, thinking more broadly about community and what our role within community is as uh, and and hopefully the distance that we've had between us over the last two and a half years will 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 be able to close ranks and and uh, and come together. So the question I ask our, our guests uh, as we near the end of each one of our uh, our interviews is if you had a magic wand and you could ask for one thing that would make a difference as we think about both the challenge and the opportunity we're facing with our with our aging population. Alex, what would your one thing be that uh, you would wish for and why? <laughs> That's a tough question, Donna. Um... I think my would be mine would actually be more on change in policy uh, in the province and in the country that opens the doors for these technologies to be used and to actually get out there in the marketplace. The tech is the easy piece. We, we can build you a better robot. We can build you 
better sensors, et cetera. It's, it's how do we get them out there into the hands of the people that need them? And there's a lot of barriers in the policy world right now that we need to overcome and that we need to convince our government and our various agencies that technology can play a huge role. John. So I, I, if I had a magic wand, I would, uh, my, my wish would be that everybody would realize that frailty is not an inevitable part of aging. And once we realize that, then we can actually work towards making that, that realization happen. So if I could make everybody realize that, I think we would win part of the battle. Because right now, we, we just think that uh, people are going to become frail. And once we come, they become frail, then we need to deal with them. We need to build long-term care homes. Our thinking has to change and that's where we need to put increasing amounts of resources to actually thinking how we change about uh, how we think about aging going forward. I really do want to thank both of you for your leadership and, and uh, for sharing with us today. And I uh, look forward to following uh, your work and carrying on this discussion and, and sharing this with our listeners. It's been delightful to listen to you. And I know that we're in good hands with leaders such as yourselves out there moving the, the discussion. And we're looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. So thank you very, very much to both of you. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. In my conversation with Dr. Mihalidis and Dr. Muscadiri, they brought up several key points about the need for a completely new paradigm when it comes to supporting the aging process. Most countries around the world are faced with the challenges of supporting our aging baby boomer population, and few are ready. We're going to have to turn to more innovation and more technology to support seniors and their caregivers as they age. As my guest pointed out, it's not just about creating new products, though. It's also about getting that new technology and new supports to market and into the hands of the people who need it. They also noted that it's time to look at new ways to include seniors in our communities and normalize the aging process. Dr. Muscadiri said that when he visited Denmark, he was struck by the level of engagement from the community, not just by the amount of local supports for seniors, but also by how long-term care homes were integrated as part of the community infrastructure. This is a culture change that we're all working towards, including here in Ontario, Canada. There is much food for thought in today's conversation, and I'm looking forward to discussing these ideas further on upcoming episodes of our podcast. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. Point Click Care is a leading healthcare technology platform enabling meaningful collaboration and access to real-time insights at any stage of a patient's healthcare journey. PointClick Care's single platform spans the care continuum, fostering proactive, holistic decision-making and improved outcomes for all. Over 25,000 long-term post-acute care providers in over 1,600 hospitals use PointClick Care today. For more information on Point Click Care software solutions, visit pointclickcare.com. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, 
meeting the needs of our aging population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.